coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Monday to you. Although if you're a Braves fan, it's more of a nerve-wracking kind of Monday. And after the weekend and the events in Israel, <laughs> we start the week like at each other's throats already, right? The weather's nice. The colors are starting to come out in the trees, and we have Halloween around the corner. The Falcons won. Georgia's still the number one team in the country. We should have a lot that we should be happy about in this country. The economy has managed to withstand the supply chain issues and the feared recession after the pandemic, and yet we're at each other's throats. And unironically, I can't help but agree with Nikki Haley, when Nikki Haley tweeted, and again, I think completely lacking in self-awareness, she wrote, I kid you not, America is incredibly distracted and divided. And when we are distracted, the world is less safe. This at nine o'clock this morning, by the way, we need to wake up and put the division behind us and focus on keeping Americans safe. (laughs) I only laugh at that. I totally agree with her. Except the, the reason I laugh is because when you go down to the rest of what she's posting on Twitter, like, uh, let's see, this was at about 2.30 today. Let me break this down for you. Joe Biden, you don't give money to a regime that hates America. It's kind of divisive, right? Not that Joe Biden actually gave money to the regime. Oh, it's just, you can't argue facts with the, 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 the fact-deprived. Almost the minute the dust was starting to settle on all that was going down in Israel. And make no mistake, Hamas should pay for this stuff. It's terrible. There's no way to mince words. But, I mean, the blood's not even drying on the streets in the the, the affected areas of Israel. And you've got right-wing politicians ready to, well, look what Joe Biden just gave them, $6 billion. And clearly, that money is fungible. And that meant that $6 billion was freed up for Iran to send to Hamas. Never mind that the $6 billion has set aside in an account that has to be vetted by the State Department and only used for like food and other humanitarian needs, right? Oh, but, but that money's fungible. That means that that frees up $6 billion elsewhere for Iran to do evil things. You, you can't win with these folks, man. You can't give them facts when they're just going to cook up bat conspiracy theories that can sort of make sense in their little feeble minds and amongst their followers, but not to those who rely on facts. Nikki Haley is saddened that we're divided as a country and yet spent all day Sunday hitting up the talk shows and on Fox News, slamming Secretary of State Blinken as, quote, irresponsible for saying that there's no link between the Israeli attack and the $6 billion released to Iran. Come on, Nikki. You're complicit in this division, lady. What happened to leaving politics at the water's edge? She actually almost tripped into some truth when she posted this over the weekend via Twitter or X or whatever the hell we're calling it now. At the UN, I introduced a resolution denouncing Hamas. America was the only member of the Security Council to vote for it. Not true. The United Kingdom did as well. And look at here, we have uh, Twitter or X, whatever, with their little reader context thing, pointing that out. But you know who didn't denounce Hamas? China. Russia. Ooh, Nikki almost gets it. 
And this is the inconvenient part that I don't think a lot on the right want to talk about. Tom Hartman hosts a progressive talk show, and a lot of you that listen to me on the America One radio app or at AmericaOneRadio.com listen to him before my show, right? He tweeted this uh, yesterday afternoon, I believe, at around lunchtime. Hamas apparently knew how to get around Israel's Iron Dome defenses. They probably learned this from Iran. Iran almost certainly got the information from Russia. And who gave it to Russia? Sure looks like it was Donald Trump at the request of Putin. Let's go back in time. May 15th, 2017. The headline in the Washington Post. Greg Miller and Greg Jaffe writing. Trump revealed highly classified information to Russian foreign minister and ambassador. President Trump revealed highly classified information to the Russian foreign minister and ambassador in a White House meeting last week, according to current and former U.S. officials, who said Trump's disclosures jeopardized a critical source of intelligence on the Islamic State. The information the president relayed had been provided by a U.S. partner through an intelligence sharing arrangement and considered so sensitive that details have been withheld from allies and tightly restricted, even within the U.S. government officials said. Next paragraph. The partner had not given the United States permission to share the material with Russia. An official said Trump's decision to do so endangers cooperation from an ally that has access to the inner workings of the Islamic State. After Trump's meeting, senior White House officials took steps to contain the damage, placing calls to the CIA and the National Security Agency. As we are now all well aware, Donald Trump is not good with classified information. You might use a guest bathroom at Mar-a-Lago and find boxes of classified intel right next to the sh**. Or you might just be having dinner at Mar-a-Lago and he might just lean over and whisper some sh** in your ear. But yes, let's try and come up with some sort of theory that shows how Joe Biden getting Americans released from being held in Iran in exchange for releasing money that belonged to them anyway, that can still only be used for humanitarian good by being vetted by the State Department before it even gets released in the first place, is somehow tied to Hamas. Now, before you go thinking, I'm just cooking up some half-baked conspiracies here. It was two days later on May 17th, 2017, that the New York Times reports, headline, Israel said to be source of secret intelligence Trump gave to Russians. Mm -hmm. Adam Goldman, Eric Schmidt, Peter Baker writing the classified intelligence that President Trump disclosed in a meeting last week with Russian officials at the White House was provided by Israel, according to a current and former American official familiar with how the United States obtained the information. The revelation adds a potential diplomatic complication to an episode that has renewed questions about how the White House handles sensitive intelligence. I mean, this was a theme going back to at least spring of 2017. Article continues, Israel is one of the United States' most important allies and runs one of the most active espionage networks in the Middle East. Mr. Trump's boasting about some of Israel's most sensitive information to the Russians could damage the relationships between the two countries and raises the possibility that the information could be passed to Iran, Russia's close ally and Israel's main threat in the region. Further down into the New York Times article, obviously the reactions were split down party lines, but on Capitol Hill reaction, uh, even many Republicans indicated that they wanted the White House to show more discipline. There are some alignments that need to take place over there, and I think they're fully aware of that, said Senator Bob Corker, Republican of Tennessee and the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Just the decision-making processes and everybody being on the same page. And get this, 
It was not clear whether the president or other Americans in this meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov were aware of the sensitivity of what was shared. Only afterward, when notes on the discussion were circulated among National Security Council officials, was the information flagged as too sensitive to have been shared even among many American officials, officials said. Intelligence officials worried that Mr. Trump provided enough details to effectively expose the source of the information and the manner in which it had been collected. Okay, so there is a lot to discuss about this that, of course, I can tie to some local issues. From today's AJC, and I got to be honest, I watched this unfold over the weekend on Twitter myself, breathless. I was literally just gobsmacked. State Representative Esther Penich, the only Jewish member of the state legislature, drew fire from some in her party for a social media post that suggested far-left members of Congress who have criticized Israeli policies were, quote, celebrating. Ma'am, no. It was disgusting. Just, I, I, I and I, I want to just kind of side on, I get it, it's an emotional day for those closely affected. I completely understand that. But instead of realizing one's um, animus, uh, exuberance isn't really the word because that sounds gleeful, but in in such an emotional state to post something like that on social media, usually after a cooling down period, one has a a revelation, uh, a note of self-awareness and says, you know what, that wasn't the right thing to say the wrong time, et cetera, so on. We need to be united. Nikki Haley, we need to be united, at least within your own party, my God, uh, and, 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 and face this together with a unified voice, blah, blah, blah. No, she went on and on and on, on and on and on and on and on. Not even kidding me. And it honestly was a no-win situation for those who, I'm going to raise my hand here meekly, who are kind of tired of seeing the bloodshed period on either side of the partition. I really am. This is not a one side completely evil, the other side completely angelic sort of scenario here. I'm not going to apologize for that. And you know what? I would say a plurality, if not a majority, of American Jews feel the same way about that. There is sympathy within American Jewish circles for the plight of the Palestinian people. Again, this is not to... And and let's, let's point something else out, by the way. Hamas does not equal the Palestinian people. The folks that are living in Gaza and the West Bank and settlements spotted throughout the map of Israel. By, the, by now, we've all seen the graphs, right, of what uh, the, 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 the division of land was supposed to be in the 1950s and what it looks like now and how the Palestinian footprint has essentially disappeared like cotton candy in, <laughs> in the river. You've seen the, 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 the little cartoon, or not the cartoon, the video of the raccoon. Oh, I got cotton candy. Let me take it down here to the river and wash it, and it just dissolves. That's essentially what the Palestinian footprint has looked like. And again... I'm not sitting here defending the Hamas or Hezbollah. Or any, it's all awful. And, but at the same time, I also happen to think apartheid's awful. I think limiting power and clean water or water that's not even clean for people to use and 
I just think this is a second class citizen. It's all an awful way to exist, and we're not getting anywhere. And as much as I would say to anyone who is pro-Palestinian, the violence over the weekend doesn't help. I think the violence going the other way doesn't help. It doesn't help. But holy smokes, the rhetoric from the Christian right wing ever since this all went down. Again, it's all about blaming the left, and it's all about not conceding one iota that there's egregious wrong on both sides, and we've got to find ways to bring both sides to the table instead of to ammunition. Joining me uh, on the show today is professor of sociology, Coca University professor, Mal Hyman. Mal is an American Jewish person. He's also been to Israel. He has a lot of insights on this. We will talk with him more about what we're dealing with, with Israel and Hamas and the Palestinian movement and more. When the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Monday. And joining me, I really just couldn't think of anybody better to have this discussion, honestly, that, that I knew and could get in touch with and who agreed to be on the show. And that would be my good friend, uh, sociology professor Mal Hyman from Coker University. Mal, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm glad to join you. I really wanted to, to reach out to you because not only are, are you someone who is, uh, I guess we would consider uh, an American Jewish person, but you've also visited the Middle East, and I think you are uniquely aware, more than most Americans, what it's like to not just live in Israel as uh, an Israeli citizen or even a, a guest of the country, but also have a snapshot of what it's like to be a Palestinian in that country as well. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I visited Israel the first time in 1973 to work on a kibbutz. I did so for the summer, uh, and it was part of the uh, Mapam movement, if you will, the labor, democratic socialist, Zionists. And uh, it was a great experience. Uh, clearly, uh, a large communal farm can work well. It's democratic. It was egalitarian, leadership rotated, uh, and I remember walking through Jerusalem in 73 and thinking, uh, I, I want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also met some Palestinians and heard stories back then of what was going on and visited the region again doing human rights work in uh, 1989 with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee doing human rights work, looking at the first intifada. Mm. And I was located in Janine and in Gaza City mm. for a couple of weeks. And it was stunning to see and hear uh, the Palestinian side of the story. Remember, the first interview was a woman whose child died of tear gas. Uh, we don't think of deaths, but, you know, the respiratory system of Young people and seniors is fragile enough that it can kill you. Uh, I saw uh, people who had been hit by rubber bullets, which is kind of like a steel pellet surrounded by a hockey puck. Mm. And eyes are knocked out. People lost hearing. Mm. It was pretty rough going through it. We did legal affidavits where people would tell their story. Then I would recount it, write it. They would sign it. Mm. And all of us in this delegation of 16 would share those legal affidavits and 
and we would present them, talk to Strom Thurmond and, uh, and Ernest Hollings um, when I came back. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of standard human rights work where you, you do that. And it was appalling to see how oppressive the uh, Israeli government had been in the West Bank and Gaza. A lot of the injuries were to the back of people's wrists. They'd swollen up like uh, baseball. It was not an accidental uh, injury that they were beaten there. We heard stories of people that had done years in prison, and it was the honor for people who had done time in prison to teach Palestinian history. Mm. And heard stories of the Nakba, the cleansing uh, at the outset of... uh, uh, the first Israeli-Palestinian uh, fighting. Um, so it was it was an eye-opener for that period during the first Intifada. And then he went back in 2013 uh, to view a number of cities in the West Bank mm-hmm. uh, to see the situation. And uh, people were beyond frustrated. Uh, community leaders spoke to us. And uh, we saw the difficulties of getting around uh, the system of passports, uh, what it was like at the checkpoints, um, that the settlers were doing what they wanted, that the settlements had been expanded. You know, it was clearly untenable. People were angry and some sort of eruption politically. Uh, you knew it was going to happen. It was when, not if. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are my three visits to Israel. Uh, None of them all that long. Uh, A few months in 73 and then a few weeks in uh, 89 and then 2013. Uh, So I followed it. I don't want to claim I'm an expert. Right. Do you, in the time that you were there, those three different times, and over the course of, what, four, five decades there almost, uh, did you get a sense what the Israeli citizen felt uh, about the the struggle between the Palestinian and, and the Israeli citizen? Because I think in a lot of cases we get we get government confused with people, like with Iran. Like the Iranian people love American culture. The Iranian government, not so much. So is there a little bit of a disparity, uh, disparity between what the Israeli government views the conflict versus the way the Israeli citizen does. Yeah. And for a while, the labor party was the majority and they were moving toward a two state solution. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin had been a general in the army and led the labor party had struck a deal for the Oslo Accords, which called for, Uh, an ending of expansion of settlements and moving toward a two-state solution. And he was assassinated. Uh, Leadership broke down. And at the point where uh, the conservative party, the Likud party, took over in Israel, Mm. uh, they were more committed to expansion in the West Bank and in Gaza so the public hasn't really spoken with one mind on this, although now Likud and the right-wing parties uh, have ascendancy in the country. 
uh, in part because of an outmigration of some Israelis that are frustrated with the situation, and large families and in-migration from more conservative um, Sephardic Jews. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, a difference of opinion in the country, uh, but I'd say a majority of over 60% uh, that feel that Israel has a right to defend itself and mm -hmm. to expand where it can. Mm -hmm. Now, the caveat that I think um, some of your listeners might find uh, a bit different is in 2023, I was able to spend a little bit more time in Israel again, talking with professors, Jewish professors. Can I let you and tease that and we come back and discuss that after the break? I'm up on a hard break, but I'd love to yep. pick right back up on that. We're with Sounds Mal, good. Good deal. Mal Hyman, sociology professor, Coker University. When we return on The Ron Show, the American Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Yep. Follow The Ron Show on Twitter at Ron Show ATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. We are on the phone with sociology professor Mal Hyman, a good friend of mine from Coker University. And uh, Mal is just uh, the person to talk to when it comes to dealing with the aftermath of the hostilities in Israel at the hand of Hamas. Mal is, a, is an American Jewish person who has been to Israel several times. You were, in fact, telling us about uh, your most recent visit in 2013 and how you were uh, working there on the ground. And I, I hate to interrupt. I hated to interrupt you, but I was up against a hard break, so I'll just let you continue. No problem at all. Yeah, what I found in 2013 was the uh, Jewish population in Israel was largely unaware of the Palestinian plight. Mm. They rarely come in contact with each other. There is less apartheid inside of Israel proper. Uh, it's, it's heavily um, separated in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So you don't find Israelis and Palestinians going to school together or playing soccer together uh, or living in integrated neighborhoods, speaking different languages, hearing very different messages from the rabbis and the imams. Mm. So both sides have, to a great extent, demonized the other. Mm -hmm. And familiarity uh, could, could lessen the tensions, uh, but it, it, it's not structured so they get to know each other yeah. well. It's clear if you'd have community leaders visiting the West Bank, as I did, um, they'd come back seeing the same things I did, that it's intolerable, it needs to be thoroughly reconsidered, uh, that the Oslo Accords uh, have to be looked at again, uh, and that this will lead to, to more violence and, and pain. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't see it, and it's not reported, and you're not meeting anybody that has that lived experience, it kind of drifts from your mind. Mm -hmm. And I remember 2013 saying, well, how salient is peace with the Palestinians in this next election? And almost every professor told me, most important thing is the economy. Mm. Peace issues are second or third to the economy, mm. which I was surprised to hear. But, but it, it kind of draws a parallel to, me, to to back here domestically. We talk about crime being such a central issue at any election cycle, especially when the right wants to use it as a cudgel to uh, attack the left when the left is in control. 
or, you know, harp on Democrat-run cities because of crime, et cetera, and so on. And yet it's the opportunity that creates the environment for crime. And there never seems to be a, a, a light bulb moment from the uh, pro-militarization of police or the pro-militarization, uh, you know, in this scenario either, that it's opportunity. If, if you allow people the opportunity to exist economically, to have clean water, to not fear being uh, bombed, to have working electricity uh, in 2023, to be able to get to and from their job without delays because of checkpoints and things of that matter, that you would start to see uh, some sort of normalization, you would think. And, and it's like we, we have that problem here in the United States as well in, in, in many respects. Um, but but also I just I see parallels within this nation's history and its indigenous population with what uh, the Israeli-Palestinian struggle is like. We have dissolved the Native uh, American footprint to tiny blotches of reservations here and there, and they're economically repressed as well. And it's 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 almost as if we we've we've just decided that uh, the fate here in the United States is is okay with with the, the fate of the Palestinian in Israel as well. Yeah, I think you're right to say this is a more contemporary form of colonization that some of the Zionists used. There was a very open debate within Zionism uh, as to whether they should try to expand or be more democratic. Mm. And there were big differences and uh, the side that, that, feels expansion is necessary for security and because of an interpretation of the Bible that most would see as fundamentalists. Right. God gave us this land. It would be a blasphemy to give it back to anyone. Uh, those claims religiously, along with an ideological perspective of needing security, um, have had the uh, Likud wing of the Zionist movement prevail. I mean, way back when, people like Einstein did not support the Zionist movement because they feared that it would be colonialist mm -hmm. and it would be expansionist. Uh, my hope in 1973 was it would not be expansionist, that the democracy that we were seeing in the society on the kibbutzes would be there and be extended toward Palestinians and to be a far more democratic state. But that wing of Zionism uh, didn't prevail. Mm. And uh, you're right, there are parallels. And to say that Zionism can be equated to racism is true. And what I saw on the West Bank, particularly in 2013, mm. uh, was separate roads for the Israelis and the Palestinians, separate license plates, separate living communities. Wow. They are totally separated on the West Bank. And the Oslo Accords, which seemed so promising, weren't enforced by the, the Israelis. They kept expanding the settlements, taking over the land. So it made a two-state solution much, much more difficult. And as you expand those settlements, most of the people living there will vote for an expansionist version of Zionism and expresses itself uh, in elections, so that Netanyahu and other right-wing parties uh, have greater say-so. And it has, has led to 
angry frustration among the Palestinians. Now, I hasten to say in Gaza, the, the Israelis got out in 2005. They knew they couldn't control it, 2.3 million people, and it's kind of an open-air prison. Uh, but by 2007, they had an air, uh, land, and sea blockade around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the unemployment rate on, on uh, Gaza is somewhere around 45%, according oh, to the UN. That is untenable. Absolutely. Electricity, on average, 13 hours a day. Mm. I mean, they are not living in conditions that Americans uh, or Europeans or most people would find acceptable. Right, would put up with, exactly. Now, that does not mean that Hamas, or the most militant wing of Hamas, is overwhelmingly supported, because public opinion polls show that Hamas is supported by somewhere around 53 to 55 percent of the public. Mm. Now, that may have changed the past few months. So this is a militant wing of Islam that in taking these revenge actions of terrorism uh, have turned public opinion still further against the Palestinians, as it looks like all Palestinians support Hamas. And here Hamas is killing people at a concert and taking hostages. And no one understands the history, the context, the oppression that was condemned regularly at the UN Mm -hmm. on what was going on in Gaza and the West Bank. They just see the terrorist actions and listen to the pain of the Israelis. So in the battle for public opinion, this group of Hamas militants lost the battle for public opinion this last few days. And I would submit we'll never get it back. Mm. No matter how oppressed they were, this strategy or tactic is counterproductive for them. Nonetheless, thoroughly understandable if you know the history of the region. What's interesting, and by the way, we're on with sociology professor Mel Hyman from Coker University. What's interesting is just this past July, a Time Magazine article pointed out that here in the United States, support for the Palestinian plight had actually been growing. Democrat sympathies were more with Palestinians than with Israelis by a 49 to 38% margin. It found that uh, sympathy towards Palestinians among U.S. adults at a new high of 31%. And uh, let's see, uh, during the same period, sympathy toward Israelis had declined from 64% to 54%. So it, it begs the question, if, if this isn't about, and obviously it's not, it, it would seem Hamas is not wired for, for thinking about public opinion polling or, 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 or PR, public relations, or anything like that, Uh your 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 guys is that uh, this is this is only going to exacerbate that sort of uh, lack of sympathy for the folks on the ground there who are suffering without having any input whatsoever. I, I fear that's the case, and I fear also that uh, Netanyahu. I mean, he has a war that makes him look strong, so yes. he is gonna. He this will be so brutal that it'll be hard to imagine and that's a way of showing that he's a powerful leader and this can never happen to israel now on israel's behalf this attack is is much larger than the 9-11 attack was on the united states um back in 2001 so he is forced to respond 
and we knew it would be very, very heavy-handed because mm-hmm. um, Netanyahu has a fragile coalition, so he's going to look as strong as possible. I was going to say, he was on the ropes before this. Corruption charges. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if this, if this didn't happen, this terrorist act uh, or actions didn't happen, public opinion was drifting further toward sympathy with the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within the Democratic Party, there were a lot of folks that were far more sympathetic to the Palestinians. And maybe there would have been a key signal to Israel that if you continue expanding in the West Bank, we're going to cut off some aid to you. I mean, that'd be the signal that Israel needs. They've been given about $3 billion a year. They're the largest recipient of U.S. aid. uh, And we clearly could change policy by tightening that aid. Mm. Uh, Now we have expanded military aid to Israel, and goodness knows what else. Uh, And and you're right, a lot of Palestinians weren't sure what to do or how to get out of their their dilemma and and probably didn't co-sign to anything uh, that went on in, in terms of this latest round of terrorism. On a global scale, don't you think that, I think the biggest, and, and I hate to use the term winner, especially when so many deaths are involved, but don't you think the person that benefits the most from all of this is a fellow by the name of Vladimir? I think he does, but it's uh, it's not a major victory. Um, so I, I think you're right. Um, and I think the Israeli-Palestinian issue has been marginalized some uh, the last uh, eight, ten years mm-hmm. um, as people have worried more about Iran and Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan and what the Saudis are doing in mm-hmm. Yemen mm-hmm. Uh, and Syria. Mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of a back burner issue. It's been simmering, mm-hmm. but it, it we weren't moving the debate much in the United States. Right. Um, and uh, the boycott and diversification um, movement, you know, I, I think had slowed. So it was it was drifting to the margins. Now it, of course, is front and center, and everybody will posture on this one, um, probably without much understanding of the Palestinian plight. And that's the thing. That's the thing that gets me here in America, driving it back to domestic politics. I feel like we have a a movement or at least a a political party that knows that its base is woefully undereducated or unaware of the back and forth struggle between uh, Israeli settlers and the Palestinian, uh, you know, right to exist and it, its daily struggles, living in the West Bank, living in Gaza, uh, they're just woefully unaware about this. And now you can't bring it up because you are going to be portrayed as being uh, unpatriotic or anti-Israeli or, or worse, you know, uh, anti-Semitic. And I go back to Putin because I feel like. I feel like Vladimir and, and the Russians, and back even in the Soviet era, they knew the divisions to to poke. They knew where we had a wound to to put their finger on it and press harder to 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 make it more painful for us. And I feel like this is an opportunity for Vladimir Putin again to say, "All right, so I'm going to distract and bring the U.S. 
some more focus on uh, Israel-Palestine and more money as well, because we've seen this play out. There's been this movement in the right to curtail aid to Ukraine, and yet they're ready to write the check for uh, Israel right now. Yeah, I think uh, Putin has has recognized that the way to weaken America is to influence one of the political parties mm-hmm. and perhaps even find funding for an independent candidate like mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy Jr. Right. or no labels because money sloshes in through the Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission right. decision. And there's all sorts of dark money that's involved in politics. It's it's less obvious in midterm elections, and people are becoming a bit more sensitive to it in in presidential years. But I think that's that's where he has had some significant influence over U.S. policy by befriending Trump and a, a certain segment of Republicans. And the Israeli um, Political Action Commission a Committee uh, has a very strong lobby on Capitol Hill and will hammer any elected official uh, that decides to support the Palestinians. Mm. Uh, so you have that coming into play as well. The APAC lobby uh, also closely monitors the media. Mm. I mean, I might, I might even hear about this after this interview <laughs> um, because wow. the, the they will be monitoring as much as possible, right. using every algorithm possible to find out who is critical of Israel yeah. in order to try to influence them. They've been doing that for 40 years, and it's an outgrowth of all the fear and paranoia of the Holocaust. It's just so, so funny. that are always done for Israeli security. Yeah. Uh, but but I feel That's like always the rationale. But I feel like we can we can say that what what happened over the weekend, what Hamas did, is awful, wrong, repudiated, disgusting. We you know they should catch the consequences of that. They Hamas should catch. We can say that, but also say at the same time that there is a Palestinian plight that needs some attention, and we should pay attention to, and we should be coercing Israel to to. Uh, you know, reject their past of denying human rights. Well, I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you're shedding light on this. I was frankly disappointed that uh, most of the rabbis in the United States uh, didn't take stronger stands to rein in Israel uh, in order to have Israel live with a sustainable, secure situation in the Middle East uh, by being uncritical supporters of Israel, it led to this and further. There will be many around the world that become more anti-Semitic because of the Israeli army being so brutal to the Palestinians. It plays right into the hands of those who were anti-Semitic or were were confused and maybe possibly open to anti-Semitism. They'll see this as Jewish cruelty. So frustrating. It really is. So frustrating. I, I, you know, again, as, some, as, as someone who understands uh, the dangers of anti-Semitism uh, uh, and, and wants to see that eradicated, not just at home, but abroad as well. And, and at the same time, I don't know, I'm, it, it's just so frustrating to see. I, I don't understand how uh, we always find ourselves at this point where bloodshed is answered by more bloodshed, thinking that that's going to be the solution. Anyway, 
Mal Hyman, sociology professor at Coker University, good friend of mine, and a fantastic resource to have a discussion with us. I appreciate you joining me today on The Ron Show. It's good to join you. All right, a few more things to get to before we adjourn for the day. When The Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of The Ron Show for Monday, and on the heels of everything that went down over the weekend in Israel, the state's first Palestinian-American representative, someone we've had on this show before, Representative Rua Roman from Gwinnett County, released a statement. I'll uh, read that to you. Although I'm a Georgia state representative with little jurisdiction over international issues, I am Georgia's first Palestinian elected official. That role comes with an added responsibility of representing a diaspora that rarely has democratically elected representation. As such, I feel compelled to comment on the horrific bloodshed we are witnessing surrounding Gaza. What we are seeing unfold is the result of decades of policy failures and an inability by leaders to come to a just solution for all living in the region. We cannot keep pretending that Palestinian people do not exist or ignore the rise of settler violence aimed at them. The inability of leaders to come to a peace agreement has enabled violent stakeholders to fill the vacuum. As violence escalates, civilians in Israel and the occupied territories bear the brunt of these failures time after time. I've always believed that lack of justice leads to violence, and the only way we can increase safety in any community is by alleviating oppression. What we are seeing in the region is not sustainable. We absolutely can and should condemn violence and terror. We should also condemn escalating settler violence and terror aimed at Palestinian business owners and farmers that have served as rallying cry for this most recent escalation. As of writing this statement, reports indicate more than 200 Palestinians and 100 Israelis are dead and thousands more injured. There needs to be an immediate ceasefire and de-escalation before any more lives are lost. My sincere thoughts and prayers go out to everyone who, like me, have loved ones impacted by this. What I'm encouraged by, and this is again on Twitter or X, which has literally become the Wild West for fascism and anti-Semitism and all all manner of isms that aren't good. The uh, first two responses I read are from uh, Mike K. As an American Jew and Georgia resident, thank you. Could not agree more, and I hope we can all find the grace to acknowledge our mutual complicity and engage each other to find a just and peaceful solution. Uh, the next comment, at not the pliz. Hi, Jewish Georgian here. Grateful for your humanity and empathetic response. I think it's a bigger conversation to be had about the lessons to be learned from the 20th century. Both these people deserve self-determination, safety, and security. England drew those maps to curry favor. Now, don't get me wrong. She got, you know, disgusting, disgraceful tweets as well. But I'm at least encouraged to read the first two comments I saw were from Jewish Americans who agreed with a Palestinian-American elected official who responded to violence over the weekend by Hamas on Israeli innocent civilians. It, it's, it's to me what still keeps that glimmer of hope in my heart that the American experiment can and will succeed when, again, a Palestinian-American elected official serving in Georgia in the Georgia legislature, can release a statement that comes from a Palestinian point of view, but is one of peace for all, 
And the first two responses she gets are from Jewish Americans who appreciate what she says. I want to thank my good friend, Mal Hyman, professor of sociology at Coker University, for joining me for a heady discussion today. And uh, I, again, hearing him talk about the, the potential repercussions from the APEX, it just makes me appreciate the time that he spent and the conversation he had with me that much more. Man, oh man, I got my Braves jersey on. We need this win tonight, y'all. And then we need to go up to Philly and steal one from them up there, too. Those Philly fans in their place. Anyway, go Braves. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. All today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Have a great one. We'll see you.